As a church, we could recognize a lot of special Sundays. We could talk about different topics every week if we wanted to. I, I really want to get back in the book of Luke. I wanted to be in Luke last week and was sick. Um, and and yet, what, 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 we, what we try to do is is look through God's Word to allow God to set the agenda for what we're going to talk about as we study through His Word. But at the same time, my heart as one of the pastors of this church is that we, on a regular basis, would bring to light things that are of deep significance, but that are often forgotten. And so we celebrate things like Orphan Sunday. And we recognize the plight of orphans. We want to think about that. We want to think about International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Uh, because the persecuted church is often forgotten, and so we want to remember that. And that's why we we recognize and honor Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, because of the reality of abortion in our day and age, the heinous evil that it is. We want to recognize what it is and speak against it and speak for life. I know this is a sensitive issue. Um, I recognize that some may disagree with what I say, but I pray that we would all gather on God's word and allow him to, to speak and say what's what's true. It's also sensitive because I know people have been deeply scarred by past decisions, by the decisions of others. I, I want to be careful and understand that. So before we go any further, I just want to be very clear that uh, I, I want to in- encourage that, that Having encouraged or had or performed an abortion is not an unforgivable sin, right? That Jesus brings forgiveness, that Christ offers forgiveness to all who come to him in repentance and faith. And my heart on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday is not simply for the children that are victims of abortion, but also for um, for grieving mothers and fathers who have made this decision and, and regret it every day. God's heart is filled with compassion for all the victims of abortion, for the children who are killed, for confused mothers, for deceived fathers, for for shouting activists, for doctors who practice destruction rather than the giving of life. God's heart is for all people. It's big enough to care for them, and and his cross is powerful enough to cleanse all people. And I I firmly believe that. I firmly believe in the sovereignty of God, his, his control over all things. For some, as I talk about the, the issue of, of abortion, it, it may appear to be purely political. Um, but I want to be very clear, I don't stand here this morning as a Democrat or as a Republican. Very clear. I'm, not, I'm neither of those as I stand in this pulpit. And I don't even stand here as a citizen of the United States of America. I am an American citizen, but I don't stand in this pulpit as that speaking on this issue. That's that's not the basis. But I stand here as a, a person created in the image of God, just as everyone is. I stand here not only as that, but as a, a son of God by adoption through faith in Jesus Christ. And so uh, the, the foundational principles for why we as the children of God and followers of Jesus should oppose abortion is not rooted in any political system or any scientific argument. That's that's not where it's rooted. Um, pol- political policies change, and scientific opinions vary from year to year, sometimes month to month, but certainly from age to age, what is true in science varies. 
but the evil of abortion is actually exposed from the very beginning of the world, from the foundation of creation itself, because a culture of death is set up against the way God created and ordered the world. And it is not from God, it is the offspring of sin, and the sin of Adam and Eve. So I want us to look at Genesis 1-4 through 4 and consider how the beginning of the world and the beginning of, of the spread of sin, how those things apply to the issue of abortion in our, in our modern day. We're obviously going to be summarizing. I'm not going to go through every single verse in chapters 1-4 through 4 of Genesis. And so if I skip something that you want me to touch on, I apologize. We can talk about it afterwards. But just to get some big ideas. But I want us to see this beauty of God's original plan and the ugliness of sin entering into that. We're going to think on, on three main thoughts this morning. I just want to give you all three of them right off the bat so you kind of know where we're heading. The first is specifically related to this issue of abortion. Abortion destroys the image of God and exalts human wills above God's will. So that's the first thing I want to think about. Abortion destroys the image of God and exalts human wills above God's will. The second thing is hope is found in the child of promise. And then thirdly, let us call upon the name of the Lord. So those are the three things we're just going to talk about. So first, abortion destroys the image of God and exalts human wills above God's will. If you're in Genesis chapter 1, we see there that that Moses, the author of Genesis, writes, and he writes in chapter 1, the main purpose of chapter 1, uh, actually chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 4, is kind of where the break is. And his main idea is that God brings order and life to disorder and darkness. That's what God's doing here. Look at Genesis chapter 1, first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God. In fact, the first three chapters of Genesis are an explanation of who God is. The whole Bible is an explanation of who God is. It's the character of God, the one who existed before all time. In the beginning, God. And it starts to reveal who he is, and it reveals that he is the creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, meaning he created Everything. Everything that we see, God created. In verse 2, though, we see this, this disorder. The earth was without form and, and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It, it's almost a scary scene that, that there's this formless void that, that is there and, 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 and there's darkness over it. It's a, it's a place where there is no life. There is no light. There is no beauty. But the end of Genesis chapter 1 reveals a whole different picture, doesn't it? If you look at the end of Genesis chapter 1, verse verse 31, it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and it wasn't darkness and gloom and void. He saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And, and there was evening, and there was morning the, the sixth day. God takes a world that is filled with darkness and without form, it's, it's void, and makes it a place that is very good. So what happened between verse 2 and verse 31? Well, God happened. God, God spoke the world into existence. God brings life and order to darkness and disorder simply by, by the word of his mouth. Just as we saw in Psalm 139 this morning that God saw our un, sees the unformed substance of every human being uh, ever conceived and then fashions it into a, a human soul that, that God takes the unformed substance of, of the world, the non-existent substance of the world, and, and from nothing he forms it into the earth 
that we look around and behold and the beauty of that of what that is. And verses uh, three through um, through thirty explain what he does. He says, "Let there be light." He says, let there be an expanse. In verse 9, And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place, and let dry land appear. In verse 11, And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. In verse 14, And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. And God said in verse 20, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. And then verse 24, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth. And then let us make manage our, in our image, God says in verse 26. And so out of the void and the darkness, God brings, brings beauty and, and flourishing and life. That's in a sense the, the point of chapter 2 as well. It looks at, at creation kind of from a different angle. So we see God creating the world in chapter 1, and then we sort of turn it a little bit and look at it from a different angle. And it says, and this, this idea here, very similar, is that God brings breath and flourishing to dust and dryness. Think about a desert. That, that's kind of what this description is. It says in verse 4, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no brush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. There's there's a problem. It looks like there's nothing growing. It's it's a place of dryness and and death. And why is that? What's the problem? Why is there no plants? It says in verse 5, For the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. So the problem is one there's there's not enough water, there's not rain, there's a mist that's that's kind of there but it's not sustaining full life and number two there's no man. There's no one there to 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 bring the life, to bring the flourishing into uh, God's creation. There wasn't enough water and there was no one to work the ground and so God creates man. It says verse 7 then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And we read on that, that God, God himself plants the Garden of Eden. And then he puts man into the Garden of Eden and says, keep this, tend it. He causes, remember there was just the mist, and he causes a river to flow into Eden. That river flows out of Eden and it splits into four different directions. And the picture is of these, these rivers spreading over the whole earth and bringing life and flourishing and, and, and blessing throughout the whole earth. And man is to start in the garden, and then these rivers are to spread, and man is to spread and bring life and beauty just as God had. That, that God has put him there for that specific purpose. He calls man to work. Work is not a part of sin. Work happens before sin. He man is to work in the garden. Then he gives man food to eat. And he gives him law. Law is not part of sin. He gives him a rule. The rule is in verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. He says you can have anything you want. You can do anything you want. Here's the one thing you can't do. Don't eat that tree. And the law is good. It's meant for flourishing. It's meant to make man happy. The only thing that God sees as not good, we find in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so God causes all the animals to walk before Adam. And Adam names all the animals. And as all the animals come by, he says, none of these look like me. None of these are like me. I don't have a a companion among the animals. And so God takes from Adam's rib and forms Eve. And it is very good. And Adam says, 
This is very good. He, in fact, sings a song in verse 23. This One of the first songs of Scripture is Adam rejoicing at the creation of, of Eve. And it's, and it's beautiful. This is, this is just a wonderful picture of God's flourishing that is brought into the world. All is right in the world. God brings breath and flourishing into this land of dust and, and dryness. Now notice, in Genesis 1 and 2, in both... There's, there's life brought, but there's also human beings being set apart as special, as unique, as something different than everything else in creation. In, in Genesis 1.26, he's made everything, and it, it, it always says, and God said, let this happen, and God said, let this happen. But in verse 26, then God said, let us, who's he talking to? I think he's talking to himself. I think this is a revelation of, of the Trinity within the Godhead. Right here in, in Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, he said this about none of the animals, but he says it about man. Let us make God, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then there's a poetry section here in verse 27. It's another song. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Human beings are distinct from the animals. They're distinct from all of creation. They are created to be eternal beings that reflect the image of God from the moment of conception. That's what human beings are. They are we are different. We are different. Because of the blessing of God. Even verse two, chapter two, verse seven, the Lord God forms man from the dust of the ground, and what does he do? He breathes into man, breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Man is set apart as different. There's a difference between us and all of creation. We are to care for creation, but only sons and daughters of Adam and Eve are made to be living, breathing reflections of who he is. And God's good command is that we flourish and fill the earth as his image bearers. That's, that's, that's verse 28. And God said to them, um, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. He tells them to, to be fruitful, to have children, fill this earth. This is my good command for you. I want you to fill this earth with, with life. They had to have dominion and rule over it and to partner with God in bringing life into this world. This is the world that God created. Just think about Genesis 1 and 2. It's this world of beauty and and flourishing. I just think about almost like a rainforest where there's just life sprouting up all over and animals of all different kinds. There's, there's beauty, there's, there's harmony and freedom. In chapter 2, verse 25, the last verse of this whole creation narrative, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There's no shame, there's no sin. Everything is beautiful and flourishing, and everything changes in chapter 3. There's such a stark contrast between all the beauty of chapters 1 and 2 and everything that happens from chapter 3 onward. In Genesis 3, here's the main idea. Sin brings death and the curse into God's world of life and blessing. Sin brings death and the curse into God's world of life and blessing. That one command, remember? Whatever you want, one thing, that one command, Satan comes and he deceives Adam and Eve. He questions that command of God, and Eve is deceived, and together she and, and Adam rebel 
against their good creator. I heard someone say it's not maybe fall is not the best understanding of what happens here because it sounds like an accident. But this is outright rebellion against God. This is the rebellion against who God is. And if you read through Genesis chapter 3, I'd encourage you to do that. It says in verse 8, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Fear of God has come in in it. Because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me of, of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? What a question, isn't it? What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I, I ate. And the rest of the chapter is filled with cursing. That God who had brought so much blessing into the world now curses the world. What a terrible thing. Death, it, it, sin brings death and cursing into God's world. And, and because of that sin, Adam and Eve die. They die spiritually and they will now die physically. They are separated from God. And, and in fact, he physically separates them from the garden. They are thrown out. It says in verse 22, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Imagine they had that council where they talked together, let us do this, and now they have a council together to say, let us cast them out, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not right. This is not how God created the world. He created the world to be a place of flourishing and life and fellowship with God. And now sin has caused all this destruction. It's brought death into the world. It's brought separation from God. It's brought weeds that keep things from flourishing and thistles. It's made work more difficult. It's brought enmity between God and man and between the Adam and Eve. They are now opposed to one another. Sin brings terrible consequences. And and then it just goes on in chapter 4. We see sin, just the spread of sin as sin exalts itself over the creator of light and life. Chapter 4 is all about murder. <coughs> chapter 4 exposes us to the, to the first murder. Cain. It says that, that Cain was a worker of the of the ground, and you remember that story that Cain and Abel bring their offerings before God, and God has regard for the sacrifice of the animal sacrifice of Abel that was brought with faith, but but the sacrifice of Cain of vegetables from the ground that was brought without faith, he doesn't have any regard for. And Cain gets angry. He's angry at God, and God comes to him and says, Why are you so angry? And he's so angry that he kills his brother. Imagine that. Think think back. Genesis 1 and 2. Everything is flourishing and so good and Cain gets so mad that he kills his brother. And God comes to him and he asks questions just like he asked of Adam and Eve. Verse 9, the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother? Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I, I do not know. <coughs> Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord says, said, just as they did to Eve, he said, what have you done? 
The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And more cursing comes. And now Cain is cursed and, and driven out. And, and Cain says, my punishment's too great. And God shows grace to him and says, if anyone takes vengeance on you, then vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And so God protects Cain. But murder has broken into the world. And, and we see this genealogy then of Cain in, in verse 17 of chapter 4. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methuselah, and Methushael, I'm sorry, Methushael fathered Lamech. Here's the guy that it's pushing towards, and Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. And then it goes on and talks more about Lamech in verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Look at Lamech. He 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 opposes God right from the very beginning. First he says he says this whole thing about having one wife and leaving. Forget that, God. I'm taking two wives. He opposes God right from the very beginning. And then he says, I've killed a man for wounding me and a young man for striking me. I'll kill anyone who crosses my path, who looks at me the wrong way. I don't care. I'm Lamech. I will do whatever I want. And then he exalts himself above God in verse 24. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, who is going to bring the revenge for Cain if he was killed? God was. God was the one that was going to bring revenge upon those that killed Cain. What does Lamech say? I'm bigger than God. If someone messes with me, the revenge on them will be 77-fold. And so sin just starts to exalt itself above God and starts to exalt itself above this life of flourishing, and it brings death and destruction. The contrast is so stark, isn't it? That's what I really want us to see, is just the way that God created the world as a place of light and life and flourishing, and then when sin enters, there's darkness and death, and just complete disorder in God's good world. All sin brings death and disorder, and it exalts itself above the Creator. All sin, and when we sin, the result is always death. It's separation from God. And the reality is that we will all die because sin exists in the world, and sin exists in our hearts. That's all sin. And the evil of abortion is different only in the force, I would say, of its opposition against God. Because abortion, if we think about this, destroys the image of God seen in a human being. Not just any human being, a baby, an innocent life. And it does this in willful opposition to God. It opposes God, it exalts itself above God. What is so deceptive about abortion is that it's couched in this language of, about, about choice. That it's about choice, right? I have the right to choose. But choice is not more important than a life that's created in the image of God. Some would say that a woman's health is what makes the right of abortion why we should protect it. And yet, if that's true, even even this would be a telltale sign that only 12% of the abortions performed in the United States cite health as the primary reason for it. So the vast majority of people that are having abortions is because it doesn't fit their plan, what they want, the choice that they have. And I want to be fully sympathetic to that. 
I recognize that, that life is hard. Life is difficult. And I know people are put in very hard situations. And there's deception and there's pressure. And it's so difficult. But I just want to say that whatever the reason, however difficult it may be to add a child to someone's life, abortion is a choice that exalts itself above God as the giver of life. And it exalts itself above the established order of creation. As a youth, we studied Proverbs chapter 8. And in Proverbs chapter 8, it says that wisdom was with God from the very beginning in creation. And to oppose creation is the epitome of folly. It's complete foolishness to go against the created order. And what abortion does is it goes against the way that God originally created the world. And it's complete folly. Abortion exalts the will of human beings over the will of a helpless and voiceless human being. A human being is doing everything in its power to live. I guarantee that that baby wants to live. And the choice of another human being is brought upon it to say, no, you will not live. So in light of these verses, in light of Genesis 1 through 4, and I encourage you to read through them. I know we just skimmed over them. But I just want us to affirm two things. To affirm that the baby in the womb is a real, true human being, is a life. And that is not just a life, but is created in the image of our good God. That that baby has the breath of God himself in him or her. And to kill that baby is to destroy the image of God. Let that sink down. To kill a child formed in the image of God is to destroy the image of God. And let us remember this too, that the cry of choice means that, that, that choice is exalted above God. That my rights and my desires are exalted above the will and the glory of God. It's opposed to the wise plan of our loving Creator who has made this world. He made this world for flourishing and he gave the command to be fruitful and multiply. And to go against that is to go against why God created the world and how he created the world. And that's why it is evil. So where do you find hope? I think that's the question we have to ask now. This Our world has allowed death to be valued above life. And it's a world that has valued human choice and human glory above the glory and the will of God. Where's the hope? Because I think the reaction of some in light of abortion, and in in my camp, in the camp that is opposed to it, is to despair. And to just say, this world is terrible. When we hear about it, it is terrible. 50 million babies legally aborted in the United States since the legalization of it through Roe versus Wade in 1973. So it's been 31 years, over 50 million. And when we hear that, we're tempted to just throw our hands in the air, right? I mean, let's go sit on the roof and wait for Jesus to come because it's just terrible. And it is. But there is hope. In the presence of sin, we should not despair because there is hope for redemption and hope is found in the child of promise you know it's ugly isn't it beginning in chapter 3 of genesis but you know what there's all this beautiful these seeds of hope i'm going to use that word seed very deliberately if you look in genesis 3:15, in the midst of the curse in the midst of the curse in genesis 3:15, this is what god says 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, speaking to Satan. And then in ver- the end of verse 15, there's just sort of this little enigma. What, what does this mean? What's God saying here? He says, verse 15, chapter 3, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What is that? <laughs> that's hope. <laughs> that, that's, that's hope right there. The hope is that a seed of the woman... A child of the woman is going to come and this snake, this snake's head is going to get crushed. And the heel of this man is going to be bruised. Just imagine stomping. If you saw a snake and you wanted to kill that snake and you stomped as hard as you could, you crushed that snake's head, but you might bruise your heel a little bit. And this is looking forward to what Jesus is going to do, that he will stomp on the head of Satan through the cross and he will be bruised. He will be beaten. He will in fact die, but he will rise again. And he will destroy the works of Satan and restore the world to the place that it's meant to be. And there's hope. There's so much hope throughout Scripture, and it just continues to flow. Even in chapter 4, we we saw the part about Cain. But look at chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of of the Lord. Chapter 4 begins with a birth. And you know what Eve's thinking there? I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. The Lord has helped me. You know what she's thinking? Maybe this is it. Maybe Cain's the seed. Maybe he's the one that 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 God said is going to come and and to crush the the head of the serpent and he's going to restore everything back to the way it's supposed to be. Maybe maybe Cain. Of course we find out very quickly it's it's not Cain, is it? But you know what's great about chapter 4? Look how it ends. Verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. There's another one. There's another seed, and Eve says, Maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the one that's going to bring things back. Is it Seth? No, it's not Seth, but Seth is of the line. And Seth has children and more children, and there's, and, and, and the line goes down, and then, and then we find Noah. And if you looked in chapter 5, verse 32, it says, um, uh, I'm sorry, in, in verse 28, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the t- painful toil of our hands. Noah's born and they say, Maybe it's Noah. <laughs> and Noah brings some relief, and he's a picture of Christ, and yet it goes on, and Noah has children, and, and, and Shem has children, and, and the children are born and born, and then Terah has a son, and that son's name is Abram. And God comes to Abram and says, In you, Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In your seed, Abram, you're going to have a son And all the world is going to be blessed in him. And Abraham has a son, the son of promise, Isaac. And Isaac has a son, Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons, and one of them is Judah. And Judah has sons, and and, and it goes on and on. And one of Judah's sons is David, King David, the greatest king of all Israel. And David has a son named Solomon, and and it's promised to David that someone's going to reign on his throne forever. And David has children, and more children. They continue to have children. And and, and the line goes on and goes on and goes on. And then from that line of David, Jesus is born. And there is hope 
There is hope in the child of promise. And we see it from Seth to Jesus that there is hope. And the hope is found in Jesus. Because this world is messed up. Isn't it? And we can all agree with that. I mean, just the fact that we have to talk about this and say it's wrong, it's messed up. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But Jesus has come to restore all things, to bring life, and to bring it to the full. And so Jesus comes. What does he do? He he lives the life that Adam and Eve failed to live. He keeps not just one law of God perfectly, but every law that God had ever made perfect. He never rebels against God, never slips, he never falls. He keeps it all perfectly. Then he comes and he he brings life how? By dying. He, he dies on the cross. He takes the, the penalty for our sin upon himself. And he dies. And then he rises again to give us new life. And there is hope in a culture of death because Jesus has come to bring life and forgiveness. And that's why I wanted to start, even before the sermon started, to say Jesus brings forgiveness in the midst of this. Jesus brings help to all those that are affected by the pain of this. And and God is making this world, he's going to make it right. And one day he will return and, and make everything right. And the hope is found in the child of promise. In the midst of darkness, brothers and sisters, in the midst of all this pain, in the midst of seeing this evil of 50 million children, let us not lose hope. Even in this day, Eve, she didn't lose hope, you know. Think about your two sons being born and one of them murdering the other one. You could have throw up your hands and just say, it's over. This place is a mess. She has another son and she says, this is the one. And the hope continues on until Jesus comes. And our hope is sure in Christ. Hope is found in the child of promise. And therefore, let us call upon the name of the Lord. I think that's just the response that I really want. You know, as we go through Sanctity of Human Life Sundays, this is the second time that we've recognized it. And I'm growing in this, and I I want to be a voice in the midst of, of our culture for this, because I think it's important, and I think it's forgotten. But I'm learning. And so the response that I want us to have this morning is to just, is to pray. You look at the end of chapter 4. Verse 26, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Isn't that an interesting phrase? At that time, people started to call upon the name of the Lord. Why? What was the response? Why, I mean, why, why is that the response? Here's my best guess. Tell me if you disagree afterwards. Here's what I think is going on. You got brothers killing brothers. You got a guy like Lemex setting himself up. I'll marry whoever I want, and if you mess with me, you cross my path, I'll kill you. I mean, the world's getting dark. And I think people look at this world and they just say, God, help us. They just start to cry out, God, help us. They start to call upon the name of the Lord. Lord, we need help. I want that to be our response is in a culture that, that, that values death more than life, in a culture that puts human choice above the will of God and exalts the glory of man of the, above the glory of God. I don't want us to despair. I want us to see the hope in Jesus. And then I want us to, to call out upon the name of the Lord. Who knows what he might do, right? 
I mean, is anything too hard for the Lord? We see that in the seed of promise. It gets to Sarah. And, and God says, Abraham, you're going to have a son through Sarah. He doesn't have a son for year upon year upon year. And Sarah's 90 years old. 90 years old, and God says, you're going to have a son. And they say it's impossible. But the Lord said, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I have great hope. I have great hope that that God can turn the tide of our culture. I don't know if he will or not. But I think if we would pray, if we would ask that God would help, then he will. And even if he doesn't turn the tide of our culture, that he would turn one heart. That he would save one child because of the prayers that we pray. Not just that we would pray, but even as we pray, that we would be filled with the desire to do something. There are opportunities that, that surround us. And as God puts it on our hearts, that we would be burdened to, to be a voice for the unborn in various ways. And, and if that's something that God's working in you, I know that, that prayer is the place to start and, and that we'll walk with you through that. I don't know what it would look like. And again, I say I'm, I'm new. It's something that I've believed for so long, but I just finally want to begin speaking out more on. And so let's grow together in this, but let's call upon the name of the Lord in the midst of death and murder and darkness. The response is not despair, because there is hope in Jesus. And the response is to call upon the name of the Lord.